Hey, welcome to night school. I've been having some interesting conversations with a friend of mine who is going through some very big life changes, you know, practical life changes, and he's also on a certain, for lack of a better word, spiritual path, and I don't think it's new to him at all, and I'm not going to comment on his situation because, you know, it's not my business, and you do need confidants with those sorts of discussions. I've talked about that before, of having spiritual confidants, because the reality is, even though this stuff is there and it's always been there, you can't just talk to anybody and everybody about it, especially people who have placards in their lawn on their lawn that say, we believe science is real. You know, you, you can't have conversations with people like that about these things. Not to say that you can't, but just... There's a resistance to this way of thinking in our world today. and uh, But in talking to him, we've been talking about you know Gnosticism and materialism and anti-materialism. And, you know, I always forget what Gnosticism with a capital G is. I always forget, like, what that stands for. Because to me, Gnosticism, the way I use Gnosticism on this show... When I talk about Gnosis and the Gnostic experience, I mean it with a lowercase g. I mean it in its most general definition, which is to say experiential spiritual knowledge. Accessing mystical experiences or mystical knowledge through your own direct experience. And that, of course, plays a role in capital G Gnosticism, which again, I I don't... I don't ever want to come across like I know what I'm talking about, but I know that the orthodoxy had serious issues with Gnosticism, capital G. I'm just going to say that every time, capital G. I'm not even going to say Gnosticism, I'm just going to say, the orthodoxy had serious problems with capital G. Sounds like some sort of insider language. (laughs) Whereas I'm a a representative of lowercase g. I'm a lowercase g. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know the Orthodoxy had serious issues, the Catholic Church, just different things, I've read about it a little bit, had serious issues with capital G, Gnosticism, because they felt that faith needs to come from devotion to the Scripture. Faith should be a product of following the Scripture, whereas Gnosticism, you know, I don't know that it necessarily discounts the Scripture, but it is based more heavily on something that you directly experience apart from the scripture. And that is something I relate to. While I'm not a part of the capital G, I do relate to that idea. And it's not that I discount scripture. It's not that I discount text. But to me, whatever I get out of scripture or text is informed by a faith that comes from direct experiential knowledge. There's a video of Carl Jung, which is pretty amazing that we even have a video of him, but there's a video of him where he is asked if he believes in God, and he says that he knows God, doesn't believe in God. And it shouldn't be a surprise that that sort of Gnosticism uh, is, uh, or or the people who are attracted to Gnosticism are also attracted to Carl Jung, because... I think in many ways he's definitely a Gnostic, lowercase g. Um, And I want to get away from that. I want to get away from those words because 
in the same way that you saying Gnostic makes somebody think of this capital G Gnosticism, you know, people just get so distracted in terminology, orthodoxy, you know, oh, uh, do you mean the Wikipedia article about the uh, the structured belief system? Or do you mean the, the dictionary definition about the idea? You know, it's just, you can get so distracted by that stuff. And to me, that is so far from the actual thing that is being discussed. But yet we need terminology. Yet we do need some sort of parameter to discuss these things. So that's always a dilemma. And dilemmas are good. I I have to say that again and again, because I I refer to a lot of things as dilemmas. uh, And I think dilemmas are good. You should feel a dilemma. And you should be strong enough to handle a dilemma. People act like having a dilemma is the worst thing in the world. A dilemma is how new things are formed. They're how you see things from a higher vantage point. It's through a dilemma that you are able to see that. And if you can't reconcile that dilemma, that's fine too. That might be how you level up even further. But to get back to you know Gnosticism, you know for me it's it's very much simply experiential knowledge, and whatever I get out of text, whatever I get out of something that's written, is very much informed by what Carl Jung said: knowing God or or knowing something. Again, people get distracted by the words themselves. Oh, God, huh? Oh, so now now you're talking about God. That must mean you're a this, or that must mean you're not a not a that. You know, people get so distracted by that. Uh, that uh, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that that's such a distraction. The abstraction is a distraction. The intellect is a distraction. And I, I would never care about this stuff if it was purely an intellectual exercise. Like if I were reading scripture, if I were reading text, even if it was some sort of academic analysis of these things, I, I can't imagine ever sitting there and thinking, oh, this logic makes sense. Oh, they really broke down the logic. And now I have faith. You know, I would never, I, I would never be able to do that. For me, it has to come from directly experiencing something in the form of a sensation or an epiphany or something simply indescribable. You know, so that's where I come from. But my friend was talking about his friend. My friend was talking about his friend. But his friend was saying how he thinks capital G Gnosticism is evil because it's so anti-material. And I guess that is one of the central ideas of that way of thinking, that you know, our material form is some sort of inherently corrupt, you know, it's a, it's a negative manifestation, and that we must purify ourselves. I do know that that, that is an element to formal Gnosticism, which is that we have to purify ourselves from the inherent corruption of nature. And the funny thing is, is I understand that. I don't believe that. I'm not anti-material. But I understand that. And that's where asceticism and ideas like that come from. And just to even get away from Christianity, you get into Gautama Buddha, which, you know, his experience was Asceticism isn't it. Torturing yourself and rejecting everything that this material world has to offer. First of all, it's there's sort of a... Uh, I'm trying to think of the word here. 
it's definitely in vain. Like you're not going to accomplish that. Unless you kill yourself, you're not going to actually accomplish that. So you're going to continue to be a material entity, but you're going to torture yourself by refusing all indulgence. And in accepting a degree of materialism, you're not necessarily overindulging in that. And with Gautama Buddha, you know, basically his realization was, okay, this aesthetic ascetic practice is not the right thing, but neither is overindulgence. Neither is living this purely sensory life where everything is informed by the material world. Hence the middle path or the middle way. It's just balance. I mean, you can, you can get grandiose about it and talk about it as the spiritual path, but it's something everybody can realize in every phase of their life, which is just that, oh, I need balance. And you might realize that some things you can't balance. Like I couldn't balance alcohol. I just couldn't at the end of the day. So I had to get rid of that. While it would be nice to be able to drink moderately or have control, and I probably could control it. I mean, that's what I'll say about alcohol real quick is that I think that I probably could at this point, and this isn't overconfidence. I think I could, you know, limit the amount of drinks I have. I could I could limit myself to one or two. But the reason I don't do that is because even though I believe I could stop myself, and I did, you know, that was the thing about when I drank, I did, what the problem was is that the rest of the night, I'm going to be thinking about how I'm depriving myself. I'm not going to stop thinking about how much I want more drinks. Even though I think that I'd be more than capable of not ordering more drinks or going to the store and buying more drinks, even though I believe I have that willpower and I've exercised that willpower even when I was drinking heavily, the problem is, is I don't want to spend the rest of the night thinking about it. So while you know, I could have one or two drinks, I'm going to be obsessed with the idea that I'm not having more. I'm going to be obsessed with the idea that I'm depriving myself of more drinks Whereas having zero drinks, I don't crave anything. I don't feel like I'm depriving myself of anything. So it's interesting that having zero doesn't feel like deprivation, but yet having one or two drinks feels like I'm depriving myself of more drinks. It's like just getting a taste of something and not getting more is deprivation, whereas having zero is not deprivation. And I would rather just stick with that. That's what works for me is to have zero and to not feel deprived. Some people probably feel that way about other things. They probably feel that way about all sorts of other things, not related to substances, maybe sex. I don't know what it is, whatever it is. We can overindulge in everything. Everything that is available to us gives us the opportunity to overindulge which is why we do have to find a balance. You know, for some people like me, for example, like I can't buy a bag of potato chips and have them sit around. Because if I eat a handful, I'm, it's the same thing with alcohol. I'm going to feel deprived the rest of the night if I don't go get more potato chips. I don't feel that way about other things I eat. The things that are in my diet right now, for the most part, are things that I enjoy. They're healthy. And I don't feel that I'm depriving myself if I don't gorge myself, unless I'm smoking weed, which is honestly the biggest downside of marijuana for me is the munchies are real. I don't believe that marijuana strips away your motivation. I don't believe it, it necessarily does, I guess is what I should say, at least for me. I don't feel that marijuana takes anything. I don't, I don't, feel, I don't feel that marijuana 
you know, who cares? Uh, I I basically just don't feel that marijuana has any serious negative side effects except for the munchies in in me personally. That's how I feel. Not to say it doesn't have an effect, not to say that, again, overindulgence doesn't create issues. But the biggest issue for me is just that if I'm smoking weed, I feel like I have to just continually eat and snack and if I don't, I feel deprived, which is why marijuana is something I can rarely indulge in anymore, um, because it just doesn't fit with the way I live my life. But I don't think it's horrible or bad or anything, but I just that's just how I feel about it. It's that, again, it gets back to that idea of deprivation. And if simply getting a taste of something makes you feel that you're deprived by not having more of it, that might be a sign that you don't want any of it. So potato chips, alcohol, there's just certain things that I'm going to feel deprived if I don't continually indulge in them. So, you know, your middle path does have to exclude some things. You know, you do have to exclude some things and you you have to know yourself in order to know what needs to be completely excluded versus what you just need a little bit of or what you can maintain. You know, it's just the reality. But, you know, I, I do veer sometimes into that asceticism. Not that I torture myself, but I do veer into this sort of anti-material view sometimes. But I always make sure to bring it back. I always make sure to reel it in. Because it's not sustainable for me to think that way. Because it be, it does become negative. It becomes hateful. I mean, I think by its very nature, an anti-materialistic view is negative or hateful. But I think you have to test the waters of it sometimes. I think sometimes you have to flirt with that in order to know what it is. Because you also know that the material isn't everything. So it's kind of like, uh, I mean, it's very similar to what I always talk about, about being pro or anti something, where if you're pro something or you're anti, at the end of the day, you're playing the same game. And sometimes you have to play those games, but it's like being pro-war and anti-war. You're sort of playing the same game or pro-gun, anti-gun. I'm just gun. I recognize guns exist. It's very difficult to do anything about that because somebody's going to have those guns. Where, okay, if the government restricts citizens from having guns, now the government and the police have all the guns. And we know what kind of abuses they're capable of. But if we let everybody have guns and, and we get too into it, Like, if we start to fetishize guns as citizens, that's not good either. And certain people shouldn't have access to guns because they've proven themselves crazy. So it's a dilemma. But we have to deal with that dilemma because one answer isn't really the the right answer. And so that's what I've always said with pro-gun and anti-gun, where it's like, I feel like pro-gun and anti-gun is the same game, and at the end of the day, we're not getting rid of the guns. You know, even if we collected every single gun, if every government in the world took all of its guns, including its military weapons, and we destroyed them somehow or dumped them in the ocean, somebody somewhere hid a gun in their couch cushions. And now that all the other guns are gone, 
that person can take their gun out and say, I'm the boss now. I'm the only man in the world with a gun. I'm the only woman in the world with a gun. Now everybody has to listen to me. So, you know, we're not getting rid of guns. So that's why I, I'm simply gun. I, I recognize the reality of guns. They are here. They are not going anywhere. Let's try to sort this out without, without playing a game. Because that's my problem. And, and I feel like it is the same thing with materialism and anti-materialism where, you know, you are a material being and that's not the whole of you. There is more to you than simply being a material being. But you have this body, you have this vessel, you live in your space, you drive your car, you interact with material things. That is how we communicate. That is how we exist. That is how we express ourselves. That is the form that we take right now. And to reject that is, you know, it's, it's a distortion of the, of the illusion, because it is an illusion. And I think that might be the best way. I was saying this to my friend is that, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm attracted to Buddhism is Buddhism tends to treat our material reality as an illusion. It doesn't say that it's false. It makes no judgment of our material reality, but it treats it as an illusion. And it's not the whole of us. It's not the thing. And an illusion isn't necessarily a bad thing. It means there is something kind of temporary and transient. It is what we are seeing right now. And I do believe that's a healthier way of looking at it, because I have no doubt that reality is an illusion. That said, if you punch me in the arm, I feel it, and I don't want you to do that. I eat food, it tastes good, or bad. So, where do you go with that? I think you just accept that there is something temporary, illusory, and there's a lot more to it that's beyond our comprehension. And the most humble thing you can do is continue to rest there. Continue to rest in the place where you understand that there is a mystery that you will never comprehend. That doesn't mean you can't interact with that mystery. My greatest motivation in life is that mystery. And I'm not afraid to use words like God. In the same way, I'm not afraid to use words like love. You know, because I think that is a way that you interact with that thing, with that mystery. And uh, to think that at any point in time that you are alive, you will have full comprehension of that mystery. Or that the things you are interested in will eventually lead to uncovering that mystery. Because that's kind of where science rests, where it's like, we know we don't know everything, but we know science will eventually explain it. And it's like, that's arrogant too. Even if you acknowledge that science hasn't explained everything, and again, it's a focus on explanation rather than description, whereas I think the scientific process should be 100% descriptive. Science should never attempt to explain but when you have people who have signs in their yard that say, we think science is real, you can see where there is a cult of explanation. And I don't expect everybody to get into the, well, tell me philosophically what you mean by real. Let's talk about what's real. Because that's just annoying. Those kinds of conversations. It's like I was talking about recently, like the idea of free will 
And it's not that I think free will itself is an uninteresting idea, but every time I hear somebody discuss, like, what is free will? Free will. What does free will mean? Is free will, do we have free? You know, anytime someone gets into that discussion, and I might very well, my discussions might be equally annoying to somebody else, but anytime somebody gets into that, I'm just like, whatever. You know, I see fate as a set of parameters. I do. I believe in fate. But I think fate is more a set of parameters than it is one absolute thing where you will do this one thing and you don't have a choice. I think there's a spectrum to fate in between those parameters. That's just how I feel. That's what my life experience has told me, and I don't think I'm an idiot. I don't think I'm you know, the smartest person in the world, but I don't think I'm an idiot either. And I see fate. I've exp- Again, it's experiential. That's not an intellectual idea to me. Fate is not an intellectual thing that I've had to sit and think, what's the logic here? Because that's what happens when you see people debate free will and things like that. It's this intellectual debate where people are trying to use logic to explain something that we can only ever catch up to. I mean, we're dogs chasing a car as far as that go. You know, we're lucky if we can even huff. We're lucky if we can even suck on the tailpipe, you know? Uh, and so my experience, my, no, my Gnostic experience, is that fate is a set of parameters. And there are limitations to that. I do think that your life presents you with certain options and situations, and you do have a, a degree of choice. If I didn't believe, that, you know, if I didn't believe in choice, I would never make any decisions at all, because why would I? Um, but, uh... But anyway, to go back to, you know, what my friend was saying about, you know, his friend was saying, like, Gnosticism is evil, capital G, Gnosticism is evil, because it is so anti-material. And when something is that anti-material, it does lead to horror and death. Suicide. I mean, you might as well kill yourself if you believe the material world has no value. Because I think the material world is how you interact with something larger and if that something larger is simply the phenomenon of being alive and experiencing things as a living being, that's good enough for me too. It's not that I need something larger. I mean, I think that's an important part of this in having faith. I don't need something larger than this. I don't need something larger. But my life led me to a place where I had to acknowledge something larger. And look at the word acknowledge. You know, this gets kind of silly, but it's like the word knowledge, the word knowledge is in acknowledge. And gnosis is knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. So to acknowledge something is to have some kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's to come, it's to know something. It's to acknowledge. <laughs> I can't say it without using the word acknowledge, but I mean, that entire idea is to know something, to notice something, and admit that you noticed it. Because I think a lot of this is, people won't admit it. I was talking to somebody I know who is very very into science and, and is a self-professed atheist, and I love this person. Very intelligent person, very kind, great person. And, he, you know, his father died, and he talked about an experience he had where he woke up in the middle of the night and there was a, a, there was no thunderstorm predicted. I believe it may have been 
I don't know what time of year it was, but I don't think it was a time of year where you expect storms of this nature. And there was, his father had been in the hospital and there was just this severe thunderstorm and he received a call right then that his father had passed away. But he was telling me how, you know, it's something that he's not really comfortable telling people about because that was a spiritual experience to him. And he's not a spiritual person, but that experience, and I think, you know, as I've talked about at length, obviously, you know, the death of my mom was a, I mean, like an exclamation point on all the spiritual experiences I've had. Um, but, uh, you know, in his case, it was like, because he's an atheist, and I guess, you know, he certainly in his group of friends, the people he knows, and hopefully I'm not like overstepping my bounds, I'm not naming him, and it's funny to me that there is even any caution about this, but he expressed to me explicitly that he's not comfortable sharing that experience with people, not because it's sacred, although it clearly is, but it seemed to have to do with him being self-conscious of that experience. And that to me is, it's, it's not sad. I don't feel bad for him, but it's like, I don't want to exist in a social environment or a peer group where I can't talk about that to people who I trust and love. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm making more out of what he said than I do, but I've seen this happen. You know, I've seen this happen with people. I've had people respond to me in this way. The difference is I don't give a shit. I don't care. And it makes me think of, uh, there's a Carl Sagan quote, and, and I'm not into any of these guys, honestly. It's like, I think they're intelligent. I think they've, they have, it, and I, I refuse to, ref, I refuse to reject them either. You know, even though I don't care about what Neil deGrasse Tyson has to say, even though I don't care about what Carl Sagan, Carl deGrasse Sagan has to say, uh, I won't reject their knowledge. I won't reject their perspective, because like I always talk about on here, if an idea can come from somebody that you're uninterested in or that you even don't like, that's a pretty amazing idea. Scientists have incredible ideas. I'm not anti-science. I'm not against the scientific process, even though I, I think it leads people into this weird little corner that is maybe a little too mainstream these days, a little too arrogant. There's a lot of hubris to it. You know, even that, it's, it's not like I will reject everything these guys say. It's not like I'm like, oh, he's a scientist? Pfft. No, scientists have plenty of insight. I would never reject a scientist. They've done incredible work. I just, I, I refuse to be part of that cult. And I do believe it's a cult. Um, but, uh, and you can see where people elevate these figures to a cult-like status. They worship statues. Um, they worship statues of these people like religious icons. And, and if you haven't experienced that, you're lucky. Because if you hang out with atheists... Secular, you know, I mean, I guess that's that's a synonymous kind of secular atheist. Um, but uh, if you hang out in those circles, if you know those people, and, and I don't know how you could avoid it at this point, you'll find that they do have their own form of worship. They do have their own icons they worship. And that includes some of these scientific figures. But anyway, long story short, Carl Sagan, there's a quote from him where he said, you know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. And I understand that. I completely understand what he's saying, except not on a personal level. Like, if I wanted to convince somebody that some of the, the spiritual experiences I've had are real, I understand that they would want extraordinary evidence. But the difference is, I don't need anybody to believe that. 
I don't need anybody to accept that, which is why I have spiritual confidence, confidence, <laughs> confidence. Uh, one of the reasons I have confidence is because there are a lot of people out there where if I even casually mention certain sensations, certain epiphanies, certain experiences, synchronicities, it could be anything that fits into this bubble, any of the things that generally inform the total experience and realization, you know, anything like that, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, I'm going to need some evidence to back that up, which is why this person I knew had this experience when his father passed away. He probably had us a phantom in his brain that's like, oh, no, if I say this to my friend who's a, a biologist, they're going to respond by saying, you got some evidence? Oh, so there was a, a, a thunderstorm and uh, you received the phone call right then. An unexpected thunderstorm the moment your father passed away and you received a phone call just then and it seemed to connect you to something larger. Where's your evidence? And to me, it's like that's the evidence right there. That feeling is the evidence. Not that I think feeling is the be-all, end-all. But that was a transcendental moment. And somebody who says, I demand evidence, I can understand that if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to somehow fit it into some kind of, uh, I don't know, if it's something that you're trying to, like, convince somebody of, I understand you need evidence. You need evidence for anything, you know. But the reality is you're not in court. You're not on trial. You're not trying to update a Wikipedia article. But I also feel the same way, like, the opposite is also true, where it's like, I'm going to need evidence that this isn't true, too. Like, people are so quick to label something pseudoscience because it can't be proven in the court of scientific law. But it's very difficult to prove that something has no function or no place in reality, too. So the standards people use to condemn ideas tend to be much looser because they're based on the fact that they don't fit into this system that we use to understand things. And it's a human-created system. So it's, it, you know, there's a much, we use a much broader standard to condemn ideas than we do to accept ideas. And if something doesn't fit into that little, I mean, speaking of parameters, if something doesn't fit into that set of parameters that we've established, which is science right now, which is funny, given that, you know, I think if anything tells us that we live in an illusion, it's the fact that, you know, what we believe right now is it. Oh, you know, our, our understanding of human psychology, our understanding of evolution, our, our understanding of this and that, right now is the best interpretation that has ever been. Right now is the most accurate interpretation that has ever been. And even if some of those people who believe that also believe and recognize that this is a temporary understanding, the words we have, the ideas we have, our placeholders, even if some people recognize that, there's a much larger group of people, casual fans, there are casual science fans who are caught up in the fact that this is it. And we've, we've even seen that over the last year with Coroni Violand, where, which is the full, you know, I, I think I've gotten away from saying Coroni Violand, and I've just 
shortened it to Coroni Vi. But just for those who aren't aware, Coroni Vi is short for Coroni Violand, which is not to be confused with Coroni Violence. Violand as in island, duh. Duh. Um, but in the age of Coroni Violand, where it's like, I, I see where people want to point out the hypocrisies and, and inconsistencies where it's like people will bring up articles from experts a year ago that say the complete opposite of what experts are saying today. And expertise is fleeting. Expertise is always fleeting. And when you accept that, you actually have a greater appreciation for what expertise is. Because what it is, is it's someone who, if they're acting in good faith, they're doing their best. But if you think expertise is some absolute, it's just going to be a problem for everybody. And it is a problem for everybody. Um, but you can see in the age of coronavirus where the science has been very temporary, very fleeting, at odds with other science. You know, and that's why you can't have, well, well, you can hope that people are acting in goodwill toward the greater good. We can also see where it's heavily politicized. Hence, people having these placards in their yards that say, we think science is real. We think science is real. You know, it's like, you know, hey, come on now. It's not that I have a problem with science, but I have a problem with the way that you, the, the way that you've devoted yourself to something that is very temporary and fleeting. It's very materialistic. And I guess this kind of gets into psychedelics as well, because last night I was listening to a Terrence McKenna lecture for the first time in, I guess, years maybe. I've, I was listening to Terrence McKenna, and he's a guy that I stumbled upon. Obviously, he's very famous, but I personally stumbled upon him a few years ago sober because I was just, I was like, you know what? Like, I, I kind of rejected all of these, the guys in that genre, I wouldn't say I rejected them, but I thought that I had no interest in them. You know, when I was in college, when I was experimenting with psychedelics, I was not interested in any of the guys who talked about psychedelics. I just, I didn't want, I just, I wasn't drawn to the cliche college young man who's like, I'm going to get, I'm going to take psychedelics and listen to these guys talk about nothing but psychedelics. I love, you know, I never was attached to psychedelics. I've had profound experiences on them. But I, I wouldn't attribute my spiritual path to psychedelics at all. Well, you could say some of the experiences I have could be viewed in a spiritual context. And as I said, I've had profound experiences on them before. I, I just wouldn't—I I would not link those to my own spiritual development or awareness. But a lot of people do. And, and the issue with McKenna, one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to listen to him is even though I think he has a lot of— insight into the mystical world and shamanism and he's able to he was able to place modern spirituality in a deeper ancient context and I really enjoy when he gets into that stuff the problem with him and it's not truly a problem but the issue I have with him personally is that it always ends up being about psychedelics and in that way it's very material and he's aware of that and he addresses that he talks about that and to me, like, listening to Terrence McKenna and being annoyed that he's talking about psychedelics is like listening to the Beatles and being annoyed that it's music. It's my problem. You know, it's my problem if I, if I deliberately—and this is an issue everyone has. 
it has to do with like the free speech and censorship thing where people deliberately listen to podcasts and then complain when that podcast host talks about the things that they always talk about. You see that in the comments sections. Like, I can't believe he's talking about this again. And you see it with, it's the, it's the social media censorship as well, where it's like, this is something that you have to deliberately check, that you have to deliberately follow. And you're mad that this person is expressing themselves as they see fit, even though you have to deliberately look. And most people don't catch themselves doing that. And it would very much be like me being like, oh my God, I was listening to Terrence McKenna and he wouldn't stop talking about psychedelics. Oh my God. You know, that's my problem. Because what is Terrence McKenna known for? What was his passion? What was his, his role? It was to communicate to, to the masses some sort of psychedelic insight that does correlate to spirituality. And there is a long history of shamanism. You know, that's all related. For me personally, though, I've, I've never been attracted to the idea of like, like taking a mushroom and facilitating a, a spiritual experience deliberately that way. For me, like the most profound spiritual experiences I have have been unexpected. I couldn't possibly try to make them happen. I couldn't possibly eat a bag of mushrooms, even though I've certainly done that. I couldn't possibly, though, eat a bag of mushrooms and think, well, in, uh, in an hour or two, when this kicks in, I'll be having a profound spiritual experience. It gets into that you know, Jungian idea of unearned wisdom. You know, Carl Jung, I believe, said that, where he said, uh, basically, watch out for unearned wisdom. And that's what I see in a lot of psychedelics. And I don't think it's a coincidence, but every person that I've known personally, like I've known in my material existence, I mean, I think Terrence McKenna was on another level. And his role in life, I think, was to communicate something about the power of psychedelic experiences, even though that's not for me. Not to say psychedelic experiences had no role in my life, but just that that whole platform is not for me as a fan, as anything. Um, but uh, with, uh, with people I've known in my life who have been very attached to psychedelics, they seem lost. They seem spiritually lost. And they can't seem to stop focusing on the psychedelic experience. They, they, they're obsessed with it. And for me, like, I've experienced far more profound sensations sober than I ever did with any substance. And that's saying something, considering that substances have given me profound sensations. But every person I've known personally seems to get caught up in this obsession with psych psychedelics where it, it's it's very material. I mean, it's very material. I, here's this little thing that I eat, and it makes me feel and experience the world in a completely different way. And that's cool. That's interesting. I would never take that away from somebody. I would never say that somebody can't use that to some larger end. But I just see where they kind of, their entire relationship to something larger depends on eating this thing that gives you a certain set of effects. 
visual. And I mean, that is something that's important, I will say, about in terms of seeing the world as an illusion. The fact that you can eat something that actually makes the things you are seeing look different or sound different, that is a sign that there is an element of illusion to this existence. So, I mean, I think psychedelics can help inform that way of seeing and uh, experiencing the world. And, of course, there's a scientific explanation. It does this to your receptors and, you blah, 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 blah. You know, you can come up with some scientific explanation, which works because it is a material experience. And I think that's what I'm getting at here is people who are really into psychedelics, whether... And, I mean, some of them... There's some people that I pay attention to, like McKenna, where they're not atheists who take mushrooms for entertainment. They are spiritual people who use it to facilitate some sort of mystical experience, but they still seem to rely on that too much. Like, there's a guy who I really like, just as a person, who does a podcast, and, you know, I, I pay attention to it on and off, and there, I, I went through periods where I listened to it a lot, and he talks a, a lot about spiritual subject matter, but he can't seem to resist psychedelics, both in terms of the conversation as well as, you know, it seems like he can't resist just taking them all the time. And, uh, you know, I don't know how I would feel moving forward about psychedelics. Like, it's been a very long time since I had them offered to me. And maybe at some point I'll go in-depth about some of my experiences with them. But they are what they are. You know, and they've they've been... Uh, and, and I have to say, too, when I took psychedelics, especially when I was younger... I, I took mushrooms in high school. You know, I've taken LSD. I've taken mushrooms a number a number of times since. Uh, and what I'll say about it is, when I wanted to experience those, or, or when I wanted to have that experience, at that point, I wasn't looking for anything spiritual. While I think that I was already on the path I'm on, I was taking those to experience something otherworldly. I was just like, hey, I want to experience something different. I want to experience this world a little differently. So my attraction to those never had any kind of direct spiritual component. And uh, I would never want my spirituality to be hinged on some kind of material substance. You know, I've meditated stoned before, and it was interesting. I felt like it actually helped me get into a transcendental state. I hadn't smoked pot for over a year, and I went through a little phase a couple years ago where I, I would smoke, not every time, but I, would, I, I might take a hit or two and then meditate, and I found that I was able to get in the transcendental state quicker in some cases, but that's not necessarily what I'm always looking for from meditation either. Like, it, uh, what it did is it, I think it it uh, expedited the light show. It expedited the what Buddhists call going to the movies, where it made the sort of entertaining aspect of meditation. And there is there is an entertaining aspect of meditation, especially if you hit that sort of transcendental state where you start to almost experience waking dreams, where you start to have visuals, usually glimpses of visuals. Maybe phrases will come to you that don't feel like they came from you. I had that experience and that when I had those early on in meditation, that's actually what made me want to keep meditating because I was like, wow, I don't feel like I thought that. Where did that visual come from? It's a lot like experiencing a dream, except I'm not asleep and it was only a fragment of a dream, but it tells me something's going on. So that was attractive. 
You know, it, it's like any breakthrough doing anything, realizing, oh, hey, I can play this thing on guitar now that was a struggle before. You need breakthroughs. And even with meditation, I think having breakthroughs tells you to keep doing it. But I think you can kind of get addicted to that and, and you can get addicted to the entertaining side of that. And I found that weed facilitated that side of things when I meditated, where it was like, oh, okay, I'm suddenly having these visuals or I'm having these thoughts at a, at a much quicker pace. Whereas it might have taken 40 minutes of meditation to get into that state, 10 minutes in, I'm having that state. And that's cool to know that you can do that. It's cool to know that you can combine those things and that it does have some sort of impact on your consciousness. Uh, but uh, that's not what it's about for me. It's not about being entertained. And it's hard to get past that. Because when I first started meditating, I would listen to people talk about meditation, and they would all caution not to get attached to that entertaining side of it. To not get attached to that, you know, oh, this is cool. Something cool happened during meditation. They all caution you not to do that. And at the time, I was resistant. I was like, why not? Why wouldn't you want to experience cool things? Well, you become attached to that. You become attached to that part of the process. And like I said, I think that it's important. it was important for me, especially early on. And I think you know, it could serve me to tap into that more now. My meditation hasn't really involved that for a while, even though I do it every morning. I, you know, it hasn't been very entertaining. It is like being on a track. It, it is kind of like being, it, it is like being on a rail or something, a railway where there's kind of a, I kind of like guide myself th- down a certain set of, you know, phrases, mantras, things like that. And I don't leave a lot of room for transcendence right now. And I haven't for the last year or so. And every once in a while, I still do tap into that when it happens. Uh, And part of it, too, is I don't sit for as long. You know, because, I mean, I've gone through phases where I will will sit, you know, for up to an hour. And some people would say, oh, just an hour? Some people get competitive even about meditation where it's like, oh, you have to sit for four hours if you're actually going to reach a transcendental state. Oh, you, you reached a transcendental state after 20 minutes? You know, uh, people get competitive about everything. People get competitive about drinking. Oh, you drank uh, two uh, two cases of beer? Have you ever drank three? Oh, and then they, they do it about not drinking? Oh, you've been sober for three years? That's cute. I've been sober for 20. Oh, you had a spiritual experience? Oh, well, uh, oh, oh, so, oh, so you had a quadruple synchronicity? Four unlikely things lined up in the span of two days. The same thing, the same unlikely thing came up four times everywhere you looked. It seemed like that thing was there. What, have you ever had a, uh, have you ever had like 16 synchronicities in a day? You know, like people are competitive about everything. Um, and so naturally that applies to meditation. But of course, anybody who actually, anybody who's actually on a path and, and this sounds competitive itself. Anybody who's actually on the path would know that it's not a competition, although I, I'm comfortable saying that. And I'm no expert. I'm simply describing. This is, this is science right now because I am simply describing my own experience. And I told somebody who 
isn't close-minded, but isn't into these things. I told him, a friend of mine, I'd worked with him, and then we stayed friends, and every once in a while he passes through town, really good guy, funny guy, he's a comedian. And I was telling him, like, when I started meditation, I was like, yeah, I've started meditating recently, and I'm having these kind of interesting experiences where visuals, almost like the start of a dream, comes in my head where I see a scene in my mind, and it's totally random. It's not like there's anything manufactured or even that profound about it. I'll just see like a, like a scene for a, 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 maybe a couple seconds, maybe a few seconds, and then I'll almost like get out of it, or a phrase will come to me. And he's like, maybe you're just falling asleep. And it was funny. You know, it's a funny thing to say, but uh, I know that I wasn't asleep. But I, I recognized, oh, yeah, I can't necessarily tell people about this. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You got to hook my brain up to a, a reader. You got to hook my brain up to some kind of machine and study my brain patterns when I'm meditating to see that when I slip into that kind of state, what's actually going on with my brain wave. You know, people want that. And it's like that would take everything away from this. That would strip this whole thing away to think about it that way. But you do need confidants. You, you do need people to talk to. And that's why I'm grateful to have, to have listened to people with experience in meditation who say, don't get attached to those, for lack of a better word, entertaining, the entertaining little phenomena that happen in your brain when you're meditating. Don't get attached to that. But I would still say that that was an important thing, and it still could be. I imagine there could be some point in my life where all I do is meditate. And I guess that's a way of getting back to the material thing where when I started going down a spiritual path or, or going dedicating myself further to it, I would say I was already on it, but I, I just dedicated myself more to it. I started to get this kind of anti-materialistic attitude about even the things I was interested in. And part of that was burnout. But as an artist, I was like, I don't need to draw anymore. What is drawing? What is drawing to me now? What is music? What is this? What is that? You know, and uh, that, that's not good either because I care about those things. And I think that I was rebelling against myself, which I think is important in all of this. You got to break your own mold. You got you to expand your parameters and you've convinced yourself that you have this identity. And so I think when I was kind of rejecting the idea of making art or drawing or making music or caring about music, caring about records, caring about tapes, CDs. You know, I, I think that I was rebelling against myself and the people I knew. I felt like I was stuck. And when you feel stuck, I think you sometimes have to rebel. You have to kind of try to find a new range of motion. And so for me, I think that there was a, there was a period there where I was just like, all this stuff that I cared about sucks. Because it's just, I'm attached to this fleeting material world. But the reality is, you know, recently especially, I'm so grateful to have that stuff. I love the material world. You know, I, I love all that. You know, like last night I was drawing. I've been drawing more recently after taking a break. And because uh, speaking of rebellion, it's like when Coronavi hit, there were all these people when lockdown, when Coronavi lockdown hit, when we were all marooned on Coronavi Island, we, uh, I saw this talk from people I know, from people I don't know, and they were all like, this is going to be great for art. Oh my God, all this lockdown art is going to be so good. And I was just like, no, it's not. 
that's me being an asshole, but I, I think it's also me being real. It's kind of like, it reminded me of people being like, oh, it sucks that Trumpsfeld got elected, but oh my God, there's going to be so much good protest art. There's going to be so much good protest art because Trumpsfeld got elected. And it's like, no, there's been anything that was in protest of Trumpsfeld is awful. Not because it was trying to protest Trumpsfeld, but because it just was awful. It was impure. It sucked. Comedy sucked. Late night comedy was already bad, but it showed itself as far worse than it ever had been. And yeah, this is my opinion. I'm not going to say other others might disagree. I don't care. If you think Jimmy Kimmel was really funny for the last four years, well, we probably just have a fundamentally different take on what humor is. But when people were saying that about Coronavi, when they were like, oh my God, it sucks we're all locked down during pan- pandemonium, pandemic, but uh, there's going to be so much amazing Coronavi art. Hell no. Excuse me. Heck no. And I protested that. Even though I had all this time, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do very little art. <laughs> and that's to my own detriment too. You know, I, I can easily... You know, I can easily cut off my own nose to spite my face. And that's what I was doing a few years ago when I got into this really anti-materialistic attitude about even my own creativity or the creativity of people I know and being like, why do you need to do that? Who do you, oh, you, so you think your identity is this, huh? You know, that's just cutting off my own nose to spite my face. But sometimes you have to do that because it turns out you'll grow a new nose if you let yourself. Extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. Dude, do you really believe that if you cut your nose off, it'll grow back? Dude, science is real. If you cut your nose off, it'll never grow back, dude. This is why you can't talk to people. (laughs) Here, I'm getting a chip on my shoulder right now. But no, but when everyone was like going on about coronavi, lockdown art, I'm just like, that's going to be terrible. If you create art just on your own, if you're already going to do it, if you already feel inspired, but it's like being like, I'm locked down and this is going to be a great time for art. It's like, nope, nope, it's not. Uh, but lately I, I've been, I felt like a burden has been lifted in a weird way and I felt very creative in multiple different ways. And I, I have been creative. I, I don't take that for granted because, you know, I, you just can't. You can never take that for granted. Uh, but last night, for example, it was like, I was like, yesterday Yesterday was a big workout day for me. It was Sunday, so I just spent most of the day working out. And I was, I wanted to do something creative. I had some loose plans to do something creative throughout the weekend. And I didn't really get to it. And then last night, I, you know, at the end of the night, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to draw. I, I finished a drawing, you know, a little while ago. And I haven't, I've been wanting to start a new one. And I was like, if I just sit down and maybe make a few lines, if I make a few lines on a piece of paper, if I just start, but sure enough, I was sitting there and I was drawing and uh, a couple hours went by and I made a lot of progress and I didn't piss myself off. I didn't, I didn't, cause sometimes I'll draw for so long that I inevitably do something I don't like. So anytime I'm able, I'm able to do something for a substantial amount of time without making what I consider a mistake or cause I mean, the worst thing in the world is to have all this initial momentum, like the first drawing session for me is always the best. It's when I'm the most inspired and excited and it always looks the best. And then inevitably I reach a point where I do something, I work for too long or I work when I'm 
in the wrong mindset and I do something that might not be a mistake to other people, but it makes me like what I'm doing less. And that's when I hit a block and I think, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even want to look at this. And then it becomes more about fixing that thing. It becomes more of this neurotic process than an inspired process. And then if I fix it, then I'm inspired again. And then I reach a point where I'm just trying to get it done. And I hate that. I inevitably reach a point, And I don't know that I've ever found a solution for this where I just think, I'm just trying to finish this now. And it's the same feeling you get when you're doing a test in school and everybody else is finished before you. And even though you have plenty of time, simply the fact that everybody else is already finishing their test makes you feel like you're somehow not doing what you're supposed to be doing or like you're not as smart, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, it's that same sort of feeling where you feel this rush. Oh, my God, I've got to do this. And nothing good ever comes with that. You know, your grade on the test is going to be worse because of that feeling. Your art is going to be worse for that, especially when you have no deadline. You know, there's no deadline. Although I'm a deadline-oriented person, somehow, some way. I have some sort of abstract deadline in my mind when I do something, and that helps me. It helps me, but anyway, just the reason I brought up all that art stuff, all this artsy-fartsy stuff is because, uh, you know, it, I don't take it for granted, and I, I've gone through phases where I've rejected even my own desire to express myself in a material way, but I'm glad that I don't dwell there permanently. But I do think about myself sometimes and I'm like, you know, maybe someday I will just give it all up. Maybe someday I really, I will just meditate all day. But that would be sort of a, that's self-cherishing too. You know, that's, that's egotistical too. All is vanity. As the Bible says, all is vanity. And actually I talked to my friend about that who, who put that on a record he released in the 90s, all is vanity, all is what the quote he used said. And he got it from somebody else. He didn't know that that, he didn't know that a very similar idea appeared in the Bible, but it seems that the source he got it from got it from the Bible. Uh, so that was just, just had to add that in that he heard this and, and mentioned that to me. All is vanity, all. But that's the thing too, is like you can devote yourself. I mean, being a monk is vain, it's incredibly vain. And sometimes your efforts to be less vain are more vain. And that's a dilemma. And dilemmas are beautiful. Anytime you have a dilemma, well, it means that you have the ability to exercise free will. It means that you might be within the parameters of fate, but you have a moment where you can make a decision. You can choose to do something or not do something. Because sometimes what a dilemma requires is that you let it sit and you realize it's not actually a dilemma. I've had that experience in meditation where I'll have a dilemma going on and I sit there and I say, well, hey, there's actually no dilemma to this at all. I've created sort of a, a false dichotomy or somebody else put a false dichotomy in my head. And it turns out all I had to do is let it sit. All I had to do is maybe climb up a rung. You know, I always say climbing a rung up the ladder and getting a higher vantage point. Sometimes you climb down too. Sometimes it requires you to climb down. And that's an important part of my own spiritual experience too. Is Sometimes you think, oh, I've got to keep climbing up 
it's a purely ascendant experience when the reality is, no, sometimes you got to climb down. Because thinking of these things in purely up and down, thinking of these things purely as up or down, upward or downward motion, that's part of the illusion too. That's all part of the illusion. So that's the healthiest way I have to think about materialism is that it is an illusion, but it's a necessary illusion that we have to deal with in the current form that we are in. And to completely reject it is to be unnecessarily cruel, self-destructive, outwardly destructive. But to embrace the illusion too much is to, you know, be deluded. If you embrace the illusion too much, if you think this is all there is, if you think these sorts of material, physical interactions are all there is, well, you're existing in a state of delusion. And illusions can do that to you. I mean, just to go back to the psychedelic thing, there's people who experience hallucinations that they think are real. And in the moment, it can feel that way. But if you think that that was real, I mean, I had a friend in high school who was having some mental problems, and he took psychedelics and I'm not going to say what he saw, but he believed that it was communicating something real to him. And fortunately, he recovered. Fortunately, he didn't stay in that mindset. But I remember him explaining it to me, and I was just like, you know, even if, even if that experience did give you insight into a real experience, what you saw wasn't reality. And I don't want to be a naysayer because, I mean, that's how you feel. Like if you express something spiritual to somebody who's not receptive, they do that to you. They're like, that's not real. Extraordinary claims need extraordinary uh, extraordinary evidence. You know, you can always do that to somebody. Even a spiritual person can do that to another spiritual person. And we're all spiritual people is, is my opinion. But, you know, somebody who's interested and receptive to those ideas can easily do it to another person. That's where the competition comes in. Oh, oh, so you're meditating? Oh, if, if you want to really meditate, you got to do it for 10 hours a day. That's a form of that. That might as well be somebody saying extraordinary evidence, blah, blah. You know, that might as well be the same thing. We all do that in so many different ways. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful that we are critical people. It's wonderful that we are material people. But to think that that's it, to think that you are right, to think that this is the whole, you know, I think that's becoming deluded. I think that is becoming delusional about the illusion. But there's a lot to do within the illusion. There's a lot to feel. And it all just ends up coming back to the great mystery. And I don't see why anybody would ever want to try to uncover that great mystery because to think that you yourself or even if everybody you know in the entire world even if the entire world devoted ourselves to uncovering the great mystery we still wouldn't be able to do it and guess what that's what we're trying to do when you look at the entirety of humanity all of our different beliefs all of our different ideas all of our opinions if you look at this entire planet of human beings we are all trying to uncover the mystery, but we are still failing to do it. So what does that tell you?
This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 